Hey gang, welcome back to Voices in My Head. Just a couple of quick housekeeping things before we start. I hope you've been enjoying Voices in My Head and all the guests that we've been having week after week on this podcast. And if you are, would you please go to iTunes and leave us a podcast review for this podcast. It helps us to gain visibility, it helps us to get more listeners, and it helps me to know what kind of shows you've been enjoying and what you'd like to hear more of. Secondly, if you're able to help out at all in the way of sponsorship, you can go to rickleejames.com or voicesinmyheadpodcast.com, click on the tip jar and sponsorship link, and you can find out there how to give to this podcast. Uh, And I don't like to just ask for something for nothing. So since it costs roughly $11 a show in order to produce this podcast, if you donate $11 or more, I'm going to send you a way to get 11 free songs that I've never before released. 11 free tracks anyway. Some of them are songs I've released, but these are like live recordings, and some of them are unreleased songs. Some of them are things that pertain specifically to the podcast you can't get anywhere else. They're not on CDs, they're not on iTunes, they're not on the internet anywhere, except with this code that I'm going to give you. So if you donate $11 or more, you get 11 tracks. So just my way of saying thank you, and I hope you'll be able to support us. Now, with that being out of the way, I hope you enjoy today's podcast. Thanks so much for being with us here at Voices in My Head. Live from Springfield, Ohio, it's Voices in My Head, the official podcast of Rick James and you're listening to Voices in My Head. Welcome back to Voices in My Head, the hard-hitting podcast. And what I mean by that is every guest that I have, I personally punch them in the face and then I give them a chance to punch me back and we have an all-out brawl. No, that's not true. But wouldn't that be an interesting podcast if, uh, I, don't, I don't know, does that make good radio, a fist fight on the radio? I don't know. I've never had a guest I wanted to fist fight with. I've, I've always thought they were pretty great, and today is no exception. We had a great guest this week on the show. I got to talk with New York Times bestselling author Stephen Mansfield on election day in the morning before we knew any results. It was awesome to be able to sit and hear his thoughts on things and for him uh, to be able to just share his heart and to be sharing his research. And I think more than anything, what's shown through is uh, he really is a follower of Christ. He uh, he leans conservative unashamedly, but beyond that, he leans toward Jesus. And, uh, and I really appreciate that, that he is able to be truthful. I appreciate that in, in what I've read by him, uh, what I've been able to read online, uh, in, in his books that I've read. I just recently read The Mormonizing of America. It's wonderful to be able to read something about um, the Mormons uh, who it's, – it's truthful and it's – while at the same time – he was hopeful that I, I think Romney was going to win and Romney didn't win. At the same time, he wasn't willing to sacrifice truth um, and say that Mormonism was something that it wasn't in the midst of this campaign and in the midst of this election. Um, because I think he realizes, like most of us need to realize, truth lies with God and there will never be any benefit uh, when it comes to um the things of God if we ever try to falsify the truth or cover over truth. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that. So um, 
all that is to say, it was a great conversation. And Stephen Manfield is a great guy. You might have seen him on CNN or Fox News as a correspondent on there. Um, they ask him a lot of times to come on to these, uh, the network airways, news shows, radio stations to talk about faith and political life and uh, and religion and how it all plays in there. He's one of the most fair-minded people that I have ever heard. And in this day where everybody seems to be polarized either to the right or to the left, I honestly don't think that he lets his politics influence his views on who God is and the truth of who God is. So I just wanted to say that um, right away from Stephen. I, I want to thank him uh, for being a, a faithful person in the midst of a culture that seems to be going crazy because everybody's going nuts right now. I just want to say don't panic. I want to remind everybody, um, as Christians especially, we need to learn how to be contemplative people. I need to learn how to be contemplative and not so reactive. Um, we've all been guilty. Uh, we've all soiled our hands. We are all sinful people. We have made that abundantly clear this past week. And I just want to share a quick thought about being contemplative and what that means. Um, when I think about being contemplative, I think about the story of Jesus, the story that's very famous from him scribbling in the sand because uh, people brought to him an adulterous woman. It shows you the kind of day that they lived in because they didn't bring you the adulterous man because uh, it does take two as far as I know, um, but brought this adulterous woman and they were ready to stone her and they wanted to trap Jesus and basically saying, you know, the law says that we should stone her. What do you say? And I love Jesus's reaction. He's he's not reactionary. He does react but he doesn't allow himself to be pulled into a mob mentality or a crowd mentality. And I love this about Jesus because somehow he transforms mobs into an actual authentic community. And he is able to diffuse situations. And when I think about this very contemplative way that he kneels down and begins to scribble in the sand, we don't know what he was writing um, I have to think it doesn't really matter. Maybe he's <laughs> maybe he's writing his grocery list. Maybe he needed to go to Lowe's. I don't know. He was a carpenter. But um, I think more than anything what the story wants us to take is Jesus was reflecting. He was thinking. He didn't want to just jump in and follow the rules of the mob that would force him to jump on their bandwagon or off of it. And he comes up with this brilliant, beautiful way of responding and he says to them, yeah, you're right, but let those of you who have no sin cast the first stone. I think that right now we need that kind of contemplation. We need it in our prayer lives. Uh, we need it in our public life. We need to be, as Christians, people who are not reactive. We need to be people who are contemplative we need to be thinking through what God would have us to say. And uh, that is a, a wonderful way, as we see in that story, one by one, the people with stones in their hands dropped the stones on the ground, and they walked away. And when he says to the woman, where are your accusers? And she says, sir, there are none. And he says, well, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And uh, that is a, a wonderful way of being contemplative. Um, I think that would be the call of Christ to all of us right now. doesn't matter if your candidate won. doesn't matter if your candidate lost. We are called to go and sin no more. Uh, we have all done our fair share of it during this 
crazy election campaign time, and we need to do some repenting. We really do, and that would be true no matter who won. Um, the party politics, I think they all showed what a bunch of sinful people we were and are, and all this mudslinging and a lot of it done uh, in the name of righteousness, that's never righteous. And so uh, let's repent together. Let's be a contemplative people together. Let's continue as the people of God. The sky is not falling, but if it does, we still have God. If the mountains are cast into the sea, if everything crumbles, we still have God there in our midst. That's reason for hope and not panic. So uh, with that in mind, let's move on to a different part of our podcast. It's just kind of where my heart has been because I feel like I need to be more contemplative and less reactive. Um, politics are so divisive, and yet Christ seems to unite us through communion. He transforms us um, from a mob to a community. And um, I want to say one other thing. If, if someone could immediately go, well, Christ doesn't unite us. He divides us. He said he came not to bring peace but his sword. And I think that's very true. But I think what Jesus means is that sword divides us from those things that we should be divided from. It divides us from unhealthy patterns of speech. It divides us from reactionary movements. Uh, it divides us from our sin. I mean, I really think that's what he's bringing us to and why this sword. And whenever we follow Christ, um, the peace of Christ does often look disruptive. It is disruptive. And yet it is uniting at the same time. And it draws us to him. So... Uh, sorry, I feel like I'm preaching today, and I, I don't really mean to do that. We have a great episode ahead of us. I just want us to uh, be faithful as we can be and to be as contemplative as we can possibly be. Before we get to question of the week and then on to the interview with Stephen Mansfield, just a couple quick announcements. You heard at the beginning, um, we do need sponsors for this next year, and I wanted to sweeten the pot a little bit. I'm offering 11 songs to you for those of you that are able to give $11 or more by going to VoicesInMyHeadPodcast.com or RickLeeJames.com. You can click where it says Tip Jar and Sponsorship. Now, with this in mind, you can give any amount that you desire to this show. Um, you can give well over $11 or you can give under $11. You pick the amount, but it costs roughly $11 per episode to make this podcast and put it out on a weekly basis. So I wanted to offer to those of you who spent $11 or more, 11 songs that I've recorded. Some of them are live. Some of them are podcast things. Um, some of them are just unreleased material that you can't get anywhere else, and um, I wanted to offer that to you as a gift. I'm not making these available on iTunes. I'm not making these available in any stores online. I'm not making it available in any Christian bookstores where some of my other music is at. You can only get this through donating to the podcast. So it's just kind of my way of, of saying thank you to those of you that are able to give. Um, you are a blessing to me when you do that, and I, I appreciate so much. Um, that you guys have helped out with this show. The numbers are growing, and I really appreciate you guys sharing this show with people. Um, uh, I I, I want to continue expanding as much as possible and continue 
um, the reach of this ministry. Uh, also, I wanted to remind you that we have a live podcast. It's a 50th podcast celebration coming up on December 14th. Um, nearly a year of podcasting has brought us to this point, doing a podcast every week. It's going to be 9 o'clock p.m., December 14th. You can use Skype and use my username, Rick Lee James. That should be easy to remember. Or if you don't have Skype and you just want to call in, you can call in to my Skype line at 937-523-0542. Do me a favor, send me an email or a Facebook message. Let me know that you're on board. We've had a lot of people that said they want to be on that show, and I'm trying to make it late enough in the evening that everybody can be home from work and get the kids to bed and do whatever they need to to be a part of the show. So December 14th, 9 o'clock p.m. Uh, we do have some great guests coming up. I already mentioned that today is Stephen Mansfield. Um, coming up soon, we have the awesome singer-songwriter Eric Peters. Uh, you can find more about him at his website or go to The Rabbit Room, which is Andrew Peterson's uh, community website. Um, we have uh, Stephen McKenzie, who is a great author of a book called How to Read the Bible, which is something that we really need to focus in on, people. The Bible is a dangerous tool in hands of people that don't really know how to read it. And um, Stephen does a great job in his book. It's it's a uh, it, it's just a, a good read, and I think everybody who wants to take the Bible seriously needs tools to come to Scripture. Otherwise you are going to be misinterpreting it badly. Uh, I really believe that. So um, it's going to be a great show coming up in the coming days. And the next few episodes, I haven't quite decided, but they are possibly going to be me. Uh, And what I mean by that is I'm going to be speaking starting uh, tomorrow. uh, I have about a a three-day speaking engagement. I'm going to be speaking about four different times on prayer. And I hope doing some praying and and leading other people in prayer and helping to do that. So um, I'm thinking that the next few podcasts, if I can fit them all in here, I may be uh, giving you some of these prayer teachings and sermons that I'm going to be doing. So there's a lot ahead, and so I hope that you'll continue listening and continue joining us here on Voices in My Head. Uh, Without any further pause and any further talking, because I could go on for a while more and talk about, you know, Lucasfilm being bought, by Disney and all that stuff and how maybe Princess Leia is going to be in the next Disney Princesses cartoon. I I don't know. Uh, We could go on, things like that, but I don't want to. Well, yes, I do. I want to say one more thing. Think about this. Star Wars, because it's owned by Disney now, the next Star Wars movie that's made, the opening... We're not going to have the Fox logo and the bump ba da ba da 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 We're going to have when you wish upon a star. Just very interesting. It's going to be Disney. Something not quite right about that. Anyway, let's go on to question of the week as I continue to babble here. Question of the week. As always, question of the week can be answered on the Voices in My Head Facebook page or at rickleyjames.com. You can always find it there, and you can also call in on our phone line at 937-505-0162 and leave a message. That doesn't seem to be a very popular way of doing it, but I still want to put that out there. I'd love to hear from you guys personally. Uh, Question of the week this week, because it was right around election time, and I wanted to ask Stephen this question, was who was your favorite president to learn about? in school. My dad, uh, Randy Lee James, who has actually been a guest on this show, uh, wrote in an answer that it's it's really funny. I basically said this exact same answer to my wife 
before my dad put this answer up the the same day um it's very interesting i guess the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree but my dad said lincoln would probably be nearly everyone's favorite president but i believe the one i learned the most about was andrew jackson the seventh president from 1829 to 1837 I don't care much for the kind of leader he was, but he was a very colorful person to learn about. He was known to be tough as nails and a man of the people, and from all indications, he lived up to his reputation. And uh, it, it's just so funny, because I, I really did that morning when Jen and I were waking up, we were talking about question of the week, and um, and said, said I said the same thing. I was like, yeah, I thought Andrew Jackson was, uh, if nothing else, entertaining uh because, gosh, I think he was tough as nails. and Anyway, it was just one of those father-son moments. I thought, wow, the, uh, the, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. So moving on, um, we also had some other answers. Matthew Cole, um, he said, FDR, mostly because I enjoyed studying World War II, and he was the president for the majority of the war until he passed in April of '45. Plus, he was a great point of hope in leading the nation out of the Great Depression and its effect, uh, was the only president to serve for more than two terms, was instrumental in both expanding and providing for the future of the national parks. Reagan would be a close second, though. Tony James wrote in, would have to be President Lincoln. I always enjoyed learning about him as a child, but Coach Burgess did an amazing job on the day he was assassinated when I was a student at Dixon County High School. And it's one of the few lessons from high school in any subject that I vividly remember. President Lincoln did an amazing job leading our nation in the face of unbelievable struggles in the life of our country. And she also said, And Matt, though I don't remember learning about him in school, probably because he was still in office much of my elementary school years, President Reagan would be my second on the list as well. Well, because Tony is my sister, and I wanted to pick on her a little bit because of the way she wrote it, her sentence made it sound like Coach Burgess, her teacher, was assassinated and was teaching. Because here's the sentence, I always enjoyed learning about him as a child, but Coach Burgess did an amazing lesson on the day he was assassinated when I was a student at Dixon County High School. So, um, just, you know... Coach Burgess has not been assassinated, as far as I know. Uh, he, she was talking about Lincoln. So just to clear that up for listeners, just in case you were wondering. Uh, this has been Question of the Week, and I think you're going to enjoy Stephen's answer on Question of the Week as well. And um, it, it was great talking with him. Uh, question of the Week for next week. Once again, I'm still not sure what it's going to be. So be checking the Twitter page, Voices in My Head P, or <clears throat> excuse me, rickleyjames.com, or... Uh, the Facebook page, and it will be up there sometime in the next couple days. So, thanks for playing. Question of the week. Question of the week. Well, on election day, I got to sit down with a very busy man, Stephen Mansfield. Stephen, as I had said before, is a New York Times bestseller. He had a lot of meetings that day and a lot of interviews the day that we talked on election day. Uh, he gave me 30 minutes, or actually his people said I had 30 minutes. He would have gladly gone longer, but just the schedule didn't permit to go any longer, and, and that was fine. It helped us to be a little more concise. He is such a learned man that I, I feel like I could have sat and talked with him all day and just 
scratch the surface of the things that he knows. Uh, so I really appreciated him taking time in the midst of television appearances, in the midst of other radio interviews and stuff about the Lincoln movie that's coming out that he has going on that he would, uh, you know, uh, come to my humble little show here uh, comparative to what he's usually used to working with. So I just want to say thank you to Stephen Mansfield uh, for being on the episode today. It was great to talk to him. I do want to encourage you to go and read his books. I especially enjoyed his book on Mormonism, and it was interesting talking to him on Election Day before we knew the results, and it was interesting to hear his take on Mormonism. Um, I don't know why uh, during this election we didn't want to talk about religion. It would have been interesting to see what would have happened uh, with Mitt Romney in office because he would have been the um, the first person to be elected to the presidency uh, that I'm aware of, at least in recent times, um, that was not of the Christian faith. And what I mean by that is, I know we've had people who weren't Christians in the past, and I, I certainly uh, never really heard um, President Clinton make any statement of faith or anything like that, or certain ones before him, and it wasn't always an issue. But it seems like either people were just plain non-Christians, or they were, were claiming Christianity. And so he would have been uh, our first president to be of uh, completely... Um, something outside of Orthodox Christian thinking, and it would have been um, just interesting to see what that would have looked like exactly to have, um, you know, a, re- a religion that really has been uh, rejected by all um, by all branches of Christianity um, because of its. Um, you know, views that Christianity itself would call heretical. Uh, but even in, in writing a book on Mormonism, I have to give him credit because Stephen is fair-minded. And uh, it's, you know, he had lots of uh, Mormon elders read this book to make sure it was accurate. And he said with um, with the only exception being maybe just a couple of spellings that weren't quite right throughout the book, he said they basically had his blessing on on uh, on writing about the uh, the Mormon church. So, um, I just appreciate his his fair-minded approach um, and him being able to look at things objectively and um, not just put a, a party stamp on it. So I think you're going to enjoy this interview. Uh, we talk about the Mormonizing of America. We talk about Lincoln. We talk about God and Guinness. And I can't wait to have him on the show again in the future because um, there's, like I said, we just barely scratched the surface. He's a very uh, knowledgeable man, got lots of wisdom, and I hope that you will pick up some of his books. Go to stephenmansfield.com and check it out. Make sure and maybe get some books for Christmas for people this year because that time of year is coming up. It's going to be here before you know it. Uh, you can stick it in under the tree with Rick Lee James music. Ah, see, had to get my plug in as well. Well, enjoy this interview. Stephen Mansfield is a great guy, and I was so glad to be able to chat with him this week on Voices in My Head. Stephen Mansfield is a writer and speaker best known for his groundbreaking books about the influence of religion in history, leadership, and politics. He first came to international attention with The Faith of George W. Bush, the New York Times bestseller that influenced Oliver Stone's film W. His book, The Faith of Barack Obama, was another international bestseller. 
He has written celebrated biographies of Booker T. Washington, George Whitfield, Winston Churchill, and Abraham Lincoln, among others. Known for aggressively researching his books, Mansfield worked in a brewery while writing The Search for God in Guinness and was embedded with U.S. troops in Iraq to capture the stories that became the faith of the American soldier. He speaks around the world on topics of faith, leadership, and culture and is a frequent commentator on television and news programs, a writer for a number of leading websites, and an outspoken advocate for a variety of social causes. It is my pleasure to welcome Stephen Mansfield to Voices in My Head. Thank you for being here today, sir. Hey, it's great to be with you. Well, every week on my podcast, we always ask our guests a question of the week, and also listeners answer this over on the Facebook page. And your question for this week is uh, one that has to do with something we're going to be talking about today. Uh, the question of the week for you is, who was your favorite president to learn about in school? <laughs> uh, I think I most enjoyed learning about uh, Harry Truman. Hmm. Um, I didn't do particularly well in school in my early days. I felt felt challenged. I felt like I learned more on my own reading books than uh, I really learned in school in, in the early years. A lot of that was my fault. I probably was undiagnosed dyslexic or ADD or something. Hmm. Uh, but Harry Truman mainly taught himself. Uh, never, it was our only, only president of the 20th century that never went to college. Uh, he was an avid reader. And uh, then, of course, he was such a personality, had so many humorous moments, and uh, just took, took so many courageous stands that he's the one who probably most inspired me when I was in school. That's amazing. Well, you just taught me something. I didn't know he didn't go to college. That's awesome. Yeah, we had in, in the 20, in the 1900s we had uh, Supreme Court justices and a president who had never uh, well the Supreme Court justices had never finished uh, never gone to law school and the president had never uh, President Truman had never gone to college and it's just you know a holdover from that earlier century at an earlier time when you were measured for law school or medical school or as a graduate based on what you knew not so much based on what classes you had taken hmm. and uh, kind of that Abraham Lincoln home you know from the dirt floor cabin, read aggressively, and then pass the bar exam kind of uh, example in American history. So, yeah, that, that extended quite late in our history. Awesome. Well, since you mentioned Abraham Lincoln, that's actually a great segue for us. And I want to start off um, just by quoting you, actually. You have said, uh, if a man's faith is sincere, it is the most important thing about him. It's impossible to understand who he is and how he will lead without first understanding the religious vision that informs his life. So with that in mind, let's talk a little bit about your new book, Lincoln's Battle with God, which I believe it releases on November 13. Am I correct about that? It does. Yes, okay. it does. Great. Well, there's a wide spectrum of beliefs about the faith of, Inc. of Lincoln, and I think some go from he had no faith at all to almost he was a born-again evangelist, you know? And, sure. Uh, so let's talk a little bit. What makes your book maybe unique among that spectrum of things that have been written on Lincoln before? You know, I, I was I have always loved Lincoln, and I have always been caught by the gap between the Lincoln described by most scholars when it came to his religion, and the Lincoln of the uh, Lincoln Memorial in Washington D.C. And, and the reason is that on the on the side of the Lincoln Memorial, uh, you find there the, the second inaugural address. And no one can read the second inaugural address of Abraham Lincoln, the, the, the speech he gave after he won a second term of president, but just months before he died and not be struck by the deep faith that was in it. Lincoln himself said that the speech was about confronting Americans with the distance between themselves and God. So he, he understood himself to be sort of speaking in prophetic terms. So 
this gap between the way the average scholar portrays Lincoln as a secular man, as an atheist, and the speech that's right from his pen uh, always intrigued me. And then I would read books on Lincoln, and I again would see the gap between the way, let's say, uh, you know, people of traditional religion, of evangelicals and Roman Catholics and so on, would sometimes write about Lincoln as though he was uh, a deeply devoted, consistent, uh, traditional Christian. Uh, and then, of course, on the other hand, the folks who would betray him as an atheist. So there was always this gap. There was always this tension. And when I began to get into the sources myself, I began to realize it was a much more richly textured story. Um, he had at one time been the village atheist. Uh, he had read Thomas Paine and others, um, and he just uh, given you know decline and fall and Bolney, and he had he had turned uh, into an atheistic period, and then he made a slow journey back over the years, largely through the deaths of family members and the ministry of pastors and so on. Uh, but but it was not it was not we don't know for certain that it was a journey back towards a kind of a Billy Graham born again kind of Christianity. Mm -hmm. So all of that to say that. Uh, the journey itself is fascinating, and it's not just a little su subset of his life, a little, little closet of his life, but, you know, his, his first inaugural address, his, the Emancipation Proclamation, his attitude towards slaves and the South, uh, his second inaugural address, and, of course, what's portrayed in the movie, his uh, urging of the 13th Amendment, all of that, in Lincoln's mind, was faith-based. That's not my assumption. That's what he said. It was based on, in fact, the Emancipation Proclamation was based on a covenant that Lincoln made with God that he very clearly described to his cabinet. Many of them wrote it down. So all of this that I've described, I felt like people didn't know. I felt like it was a more richly textured story than they had been told, and uh, I wanted to try to capture it in all of its subtlety and beauty. Well, that's that's very, very interesting. Um, now, the uh, the faith perspective that he went through, I think it's very interesting that you said that you know he, there's a lot more to him than just what's on the surface. And isn't it kind of interesting how we tend to, just because maybe he was an atheist at one point in his life, we kind of will paint a person with the same brush their entire life. <laughs> and think, yes. well, yes. no, he couldn't have gone through any sort of a change, and so now I'm going to prove he was an atheist, or you know, or I'll put him on my side, or whatever. Um, wh what do you think about Lincoln? Can you think of anything specifically that makes him maybe one of our most beloved presidents? Obviously, the Emancipation Proclamation was a huge thing, but... There's something beyond that that I think he captures our imagination. You know, I think that we are drawn to tragic figures. Uh, it's per certainly one of those things. We, 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 we feel compassion for him. His mother died early. His sister died when he was a teenager. He lost his, the first girl he ever loved, died uh, tragically. Uh, or three sons died. I mean, uh, and then, of course, the, the hundreds of thousands in the war. Um, he, it was said of him that he was a man haunted by the sound of rain and falling on graves. And, uh, he was a man who almost committed suicide several times. Um, and when, so when you have this tragic figure, we, we relate to him, we like him, we, we feel compassion for him. But at the same time, uh, he, he's also a man of deep humility and deep principle. Um, he certainly was a politician, and he could play the games you know, to win the, win the certain debate. But for the most part, he was a man of principle and paid a very high price for principle. So... We, we like men like that. Winston Churchill, hated by many in his society, but standing up against Nazism, and, yeah. you know, Gandhi and others that we might, uh, we might tend to admire. We like people who are both tragic suffering figures, but also those who are committed to principle. And then, of course, I think there's just finally the, the benefit he brought to our nation. I mean, uh, he really bridges our nation from the pre-war to the post-war era. He re-articulates what our democracy means. He sets the tone for the treatment of the South.
Um, you know, he was a man who began as a racist, no question about it. Hmm. Uh, and then in time, uh, having met so many brilliant African Americans and understood the issue better, he, he changed on that score. So, uh, and then, and I, th- and I think I'd have to put the faith element in there too. He spoke more openly about faith. He was more of, of a, of a spiritual man than almost anybody else we've had in the office. So all of those things, I think, endear him to us. Hmm. Well, that that gives me encouragement, too, and I think, you know, one of the main things about Christianity that I love is, you know, we actually believe people can be changed, and that, you know, our minds can be changed. I mean, literally, that's what repentance is, and so it's great to hear, you know, you're talking about that, about Lincoln, and thinking, wow, this is a person that uh, actually kind of evolved in who he was as a person and in his faith and got deeper as he went along. So I I think this is going to be a very fascinating read, just like all your books. Uh, well, I appreciate that. I appreciate so, it. I have to say that it's perhaps my 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 favorite. Now that doesn't mean you know it's my best, but I, but right now I'd have to say it's my best writing and it's my favorite because I love Lincoln so much and um, felt so much compassion uh, as I as I you know, kind of explored his suffering. So I hope I hope people enjoy it. Well, I have to say my sister Tony James is going to be thrilled because her whole life since we were just kids, she's always been a huge fan of Lincoln and just I think read just about every book on Lincoln she could get from wherever we were uh growing up and we moved around quite a lot. So she's going to be thrilled to read your book, I know. So ma- maybe that's a good Christmas present. I shouldn't have said that on the podcast <laughs> cuz she listens. Yeah, she's listening. You shouldn't have oh, said that. Doggone it. Sorry Tony, you're not getting that for Christmas. Well, anyway, <laughs> Um, well, this is Election Day, and uh, so it's kind of an interesting day for our country anyway, so it's kind of appropriate to be talking about presidential matters. Um, but Oh, and by the way, before we move too far away from Lincoln, uh, I understand you got invited to the L.A. premiere of uh, of the new Lincoln-Spielberg movie that's coming. Yes, out. yes, we're going to go to the, what I think it's called the writer's premiere, so the uh, scriptwriter and other figures, producers, et cetera, are going to be there, and maybe some of the actors. It's very exciting. Um, I've been involved with some movies before. One of my uh, one of my books was a, a kind of an inspiration for one of Oliver Stone's films. But uh, I, I, to to be involved in a, in a book in a topic like this and to be kind of uh, running parallel with a Spielberg film, I think that's just very exciting to me. So it's going to be a great experience. Bev and I will fly out this Friday and attend that premiere Friday night. Well, that's amazing. I, I think you deserve it. You've done such great writing in the past, and so really uh, good for you. We're, we're all oh, excited fine. for you. That's, that's great. fine. Thank you very much. Well, I just had the opportunity last week, actually. My good friend, Jeff Pinkleton, who we were with, actually you were here speaking at the Gathering Breakfast yes. a few weeks ago where I met you the first time. And yes. uh, he gave me your book, The Mormonizing of America, and it's one of those few books that, for me, I just couldn't put down. I had it read in about a day, and mm. uh, it was it was so good and so much informative. So do you care if we talk a little bit about that this morning? Not a bit. Let's do it. All right. Um, well, what was something that, that maybe genuinely surprised you as you started just looking at the Mormon faith? And, and I should say at the outset of this, um, I, I didn't take any sort of partisanship from reading this book, and I didn't take it as a slam on Mormonism. I, I just felt like you were presenting facts and trying to show them uh, in the most accurate light possible. So uh, I want to get that out of the way that this is in no way trying to slam the Mormon religion or anything like that. Um, but I would love to, to hear maybe some things that just genuinely surprised you when you started doing your research about this. Well, I, one of the things that surprised me was how uh, the principles of economic and social achievement are sort of built into the highly mystical doctrines of Mormonism. 
Uh, Mormonism is a batch of very mystical doctrines, very uh, otherworldly, um, and very uh, non-traditional. And yet, in, in built into each one of them, inherent in each one of them, is some real-world, this-world kind of benefit. Uh, on the one hand, uh, Joseph Smith uh, maybe tells people not to drink alcohol, not to drink caffeine, uh, you know, uh, as a stand of holiness. Well, now today, uh, given how much damage is done, for example, in the workplace through alcohol, or how much uh, uh, you know damage is done to marriages through alcohol, and I'm not I'm not anti-alcohol. I'm talking about the abuse of it. Sure. Um, well, that that's uh, that's kept them from a lot of damage. It's kept their marriages together more. It's kept their kids out of you know trouble more. Uh, so so there's an example of where a principle that really probably didn't have anything to do with social uplift. Uh, has helped them dramatically, and I could name a hundred more. So that was one of the things, highly mystical doctrines, and yet once people begin to obey them and comply with them, they they find that these become the principles of, of economic uplift. And then the other one was how mystical and Pentecostal uh, the the, uh, the Mormons are. Some folks who are Pentecostal, I come from that background, will you know maybe object to that, but um, the fact is that the uh, the Mormons in their early history and their Mormons now, the Mormons now, uh, believe in speaking in tongues. They believe essentially in praying for the sick. They call it a priesthood blessing. Uh, they believe in prophecy. They believe in the Holy Spirit falling suddenly. They believe in open heaven visions, angelic visitations, etc. So it's it's the kind of thing you might identify with uh, real passionate uh, television preachers of a Pentecostal mm -hmm. type. Let's say Benny Hinn or T.D. Jakes or, you know, I'm not saying whether they're good or bad men. I'm just saying uh, that kind of experience where revelations happen, the spirit falls, we pray for each other, prophecies flow, that is normative Mormonism. Hmm. Uh, behind the scenes today, and quite publicly in the past, one quick illustration, and then I'll, I'll stop, sure. but, but uh, Brigham Young, at the dedication of the Kirtland Temple, uh, gave a 45-minute talk to the crowd in tongues, <laughs> an unknown tongues, a, tongue, a language nobody knew in the room, and then another man had to interpret. Well, that sounds like you know, maybe the most extreme experience of an Oral Roberts or uh, somebody of that stripe, uh, and yet this is normal uh, Mormonism. So, you know, we look we look at the television pictures of these straight-laced, you know, clean-cut people, and we sometimes don't know that behind the scenes they are uh, very, very passionate, mystical people. <laughs> That's very interesting. I don't, I don't know why I just thought of this when you were talking about speaking in tongues, but I remember a couple of my professors from Trevecca University there in Nashville where you live. Yeah, uh, yeah. They went to a, a Pentecostal church one time and started quoting in Hebrew and Greek uh, different passages of Scripture and someone started interpreting for them, and and they were they were way off. But it was it's a pretty funny story to talk. About. Oh my goodness! But, yeah, but that was yeah, I know. I mean, I, I have a lot of the, the, certainly those streams in American history, those more charismatic Pentecostal streams, have done a lot of good. But yeah, you know, you have, they have to be handled well. Sure. But you, uh, most of us wouldn't picture the Mormons as being part of those streams, and yet they come out of the Great Awakening, uh, the Second Great Awakening, up in upstate New York, and that that's very much part of who they are. That was very interesting to me to find out about the different um, religions that kind of did spring up around that same time in that same area. And, uh, of course, the question that's on everyone's lips, and I, I, I've heard you address it before by listening to your podcast, actually, but the question that's on everyone's lips seems to be right now, are they a cult? And uh, maybe you could explain for us what the word cult means, and then we could kind of put that into some context. Yeah, I, I recommend people not use the word cult, uh, except in a certain context, and, and this is why. To most people in America today, the word cult means 
uh, sort of the Jim Jones kind of thing. One dynamic leader psychologically manipulates everybody to, you know, to the drinking of point of drinking the Kool-Aid, suicide Kool-Aid, or to living in a jungle or something. And and uh, you know, with machine guns and hidden away from society and believing really weird things, normally exalting that individual. Uh, that's not that's not not Mormonism. That's not most cult. Uh, from from a from a technical theological, I would even say more uh, evangelical or traditional Christian perspective, the word cult means uh, a body of people built on a reworking of traditional Christian doctrine. Mm-hmm. So, uh, f- for example, Christian scientists would be a cult from the standpoint of uh, you know, traditional Christianity, and that it's a taking of Christianity and a dramatic redesigning of, of Christianity's doctrines. Maybe using Christianity's language, but not meaning what Christianity means by it. Well, Mormonism is very much the same thing. And the thing that is interesting to me is that Mormons came into the world saying that, I mean, literally their first revelation from God the Father and God the Son was that uh, basically all religions were an abomination and corrupt. Well, that meant all versions of Christianity on the earth at that time. Um, except for a few denominations that have come into existence then, it's, I mean, since then, it's almost all, <laughs> all Christianity. Right. right. So Mormons themselves were separating themselves, and then they, they got to work reworking every single traditional doctrine of biblical Christianity, of traditional Christianity, even to the point of rewriting the Bible. Hmm. So the, it, it's, a, it's an odd thing to have a Mormon be maybe offended with the fact that uh, we we say they're not Christians, or that they are a theological cult. I never use the word cult in a, in, in, intentionally without using the word theological in front of it, right. um, because I'm, I'm distinguishing it from the Jim, Jim Jones kind of sociological cult. Sure. Uh, and so th- that's that's the reason that I urge the word not be used except in a certain context. But I'm not hiding from the fact that Mormonism is not traditional Christianity. If you put an atheist professor uh, in front of both versions of these faiths, you would, he would conclude these two are not the same thing. Traditional right. Christianity and Mormonism are not the same thing. It's just obvious. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, uh, it is, it is, but they, they claim that they are Christians because, of course, they have Jesus Christ, some version of Jesus Christ central to what they believe. And I think even as I looked up the definition of cult, one meaning of cult is simply a body of people who have a religious system of belief. And if you if you put in that context, I mean, we're all cults to some extent. <laughs> but yeah, we well, get you know, the idea exactly. We, we get the idea. I'm so glad you explained what you meant by how most of us evangelicals, especially, think of you know in terms of cults and things like that. Um, it was very interesting recently, and I, I saw on Christianity Today that you had even made a post um, or one of your quotes had made it to their page. There was a lot of controversy around Billy Graham's organization right now that just recently before the elections happened that um, they had removed the Mormons from their list of cults that they had. And just, I'd love to get your thoughts and your take on that. Well, I recently wrote a blog at mansfieldgroup.com on, uh, I think the title was Thinking Two Thoughts at Once. And the idea was uh, that, you know, we can on the one hand say, yes, Mitt Romney, for example, uh, represents our values uh, politically. And on the other hand say, but as Christians we recognize that, you know, his version of his religion is not Christian and, uh, and is of concern to us. We can do both. What's happened instead in this election uh, is that people are so eager to be, defeat Barack Obama uh, that I literally have had politicians and leading uh, ministers in this country, everybody would know, come to me and say, your books are awesome, we really appreciate it. Uh, but, but basically right now, and then they would do something humorous, they put their forefinger to their lips and go, shh, you know, <laughs> as though to say, don't say anything now. 
Well, you know, again, there's the, I don't think we should compromise ourselves that way. I, everybody knows who knows me that I lean conservative in my politics. I'm pro-life. I'm pro, you know, all of the t- standard conservative positions. doesn't mean I'm always happy with the Republican Party or the conservatives. Um, but the bottom line is that, that for me to be a conservative when there's a Mormon as the, uh, as the primary candidate, uh, doesn't mean I can't talk about Mormonism at the same time. So, yes, I uh, lean more in Mitt Romney's direction politically, and yes, I'm deeply concerned about his brand of faith um, and its attempts to rewrite the meaning of Christianity. You can do those both at the same time with respect. Having said that, you know, I think it would have been perfectly fine for Billy Graham, and actually we all know this is Franklin Graham. Billy Graham is barely right. uh, barely healthy. Sure. Um, it's it, it would have been just fine to say because I am pro-life, because I am pro-free market, because I am pro-strong defense, etc. I b- believe that Mitt Romney is the best candidate. I'm deeply concerned, by the way, uh, about his Mormonism and Mormonism's tradition of calling itself Christianity and redefining what Christianity is. But Mitt Romney's a good man, and we will endorse him. You could do both, and I think in that way you'd be faithful to God. But when I find my politician friends and leading minister types saying, shh, you know, and when I find Billy Graham not just sort of endorsing Romney, but then taking the designation of Mormonism as a cult off of his website, uh, you know, this is, I think this is putting us in some questionable moral territory from the standpoint of our Christian faith. We need to always speak the truth. We need to not have politics be primary uh, and trump the modern issues of faith how horrible it would be in our generation if thousands go to hell because they have are confused. We have confused them theologically, you know, uh, but all, and all for the sake of getting a man in the White House for four years who who uh, holds certain views. Now, I I think, for example, the pro-life battle is worth a lot, and and some of the other battles. But we we as Christians just don't have to compromise one thing we believe in order to emphasize the other. And I think a lot of folks are doing that in this election, and I think we're going to regret it. Sure. And I, I think that's kind of a sign of the time that we live in too. Unfortunately, it's it's like we can't um, we can't appreciate the differences of each other without, in some ways, baptizing it and having to say it's all the same thing. I've, yeah. I've found that with uh, you know whether it's whether I want to always respect other religions and other faiths as much as we would try, we're just not Islam, and you know we're not Judaism, and we're not the other things, and and they have their place. And it would be as ridiculous as to say this person who is black is white or this person right. who is white is black. And and the differences are actually something that are, are are helpful and good. You know, they don't have to be dividing, you know, bad things necessarily. So it, it's interesting well, to hear your take on that. Yeah, and what a great time this would have been to uh, use this campaign as a chance to educate people. Uh, whenever you are, uh, whenever you have a certain truth proposed, it gives you a chance to distinguish yourself from that version of truth. So when Mitt Romney says, I believe this, 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 and this, um, you know, then, then we as Christians can say, well, uh, we don't share that. Let us tell you what we believe. For, for example, I'm, I'm disturbed by some code language I hear Mitt Romney using where he is saying that America uh, is the, is the uh, last great hope of the earth, hmm. uh, that kind of language. We heard it in the third debate. He said it as recently as last night. Well, uh, you know, Christians can't, I, I, he may actually be saying is the best hope of the earth. Hmm. Well, no, America is not the best hope of the earth, not from a Christian perspective. That's almost an idolatrous statement. Um, you know, of course, we as Christians would believe that Jesus is the hope of the world, um, and America has a role to play, but the kind of, you know, it's a combination of arrogance and overstatement and idolatry you want to be careful about, and yet it comes directly out of Mitt Romney's uh, Mormonism. They, they do believe America is a divinely ordained nation, 
and they do have a view of how America will sort of rescue the world in the end times. Well, uh, that's where you have to be discerning. That's where a pastor has to teach his people, uh, you know, the, the, the Christian view, the biblical view as opposed to the Mormon view. It's a chance for helping people mature and grow. But if you just hide from the debate and say, shh, let's not say anything and let's just vote conservative, then I think, you know, you watch. It'll be a matter of weeks of Mr. Romney's in the White House before some of these same people will start criticizing him for some of his Mormon stands. Hmm, and uh, we, we, should have had a more, we should have had a more sophisticated debate up till now. Well, Mike Anderson, the youth pastor at our church, is a chaplain in the military and has some friends that are Mormon chaplains uh, with him, and they've had some discussions before. And he actually wanted me to ask you your thoughts on on why Mormonism is is possibly the fastest-growing religion right now, because they really are, are gaining numbers rapidly. Yeah, they are. Uh, th- there are all kinds of reasons. Uh, Mormonism has initially in American society, grown rapidly uh, because of fame, meaning fame of certain of its individuals. It was pretty much a despised cult until right around 1900, a man by the name of Reed Smoot was uh, uh, elected to Congress from Utah, and uh, I'm sorry, elected to the Senate. And uh, there was a three-and-a-half-year uh, hearing, uh, confirmation hearing, that kind of aired all the complaints about Mormonism and so on in the, in the society. It was the first time that it ever happened. He was confirmed, and from that point on, he became the first sort of prominent, respected Mormon on the national scene, and many, many, many followed after him. Uh, everybody from boxers to Olympic athletes to war heroes during World War II. And then even the big one would have been the, the Osmonds of the 1970s. I know it may be silly to talk about them, but they, they were by far the most famous and uh, clean and all-American kind of uh, Mormons on the national scene. So, uh, and, even, and now, of course, we could both name two dozen prominent Mormons uh, on the American scene. So all, uh, the, fir- the number one reason that Mormonism has grown so rapidly uh, is the celebrity and the power of celebrity and certain prominent Mormons who have made it sort of culturally palatable for the other Mormons to rise. The, the other reason, though, uh, is that Mormonism is very aggressive about its, its mission. It's uh, reaching into society, reaching into lives. Very aggressive about hospitality, which is something I think evangelicals need to learn a lot more about. Um, and is also uh, very, very aggressive about service. So that, for example, uh, at Katrina in New Orleans, the, everybody, the governor, the mayor, everybody will tell you it was the Mormons who got there first and did the best job in relief, better than FEMA, better than anybody else's organization. Hmm. So for all of those reasons, and then I would say third is doctrine, believe it or not. As odd as Mormon doctrine is, they talk about a heavenly father, they talk about spiritual family, they talk about belonging, they talk about uh, you having been destined from all eternity to play a certain role uh, This, uh, you know, in an unfathered, broken family generation uh, that's eager for mystical experience. Mormonism preaches just pushes just the right buttons. So I would say those three reasons, you know, fame uh, would, would be one of, one of the main ones. I would say their social service, and then I would say, of course, their, uh, the way they're, certain of their doctrines answer the needs of the souls in this generation. Well, very interesting. I, I could talk to you a long time about that, but unfortunately <laughs> we're almost out of time. But I want to recommend this book to everyone if you have any questions, especially. Um, it's a very fascinating book, and it's The Mormonizing of America by Stephen Mansfield. And uh, before we run out of time, I, I do have a few listeners that were wanting to inquire about um, your God and Guinness book. Yes. And um, I, I have not had the chance to read that yet, other than just a few articles that I've read online, but it sounds fascinating. I wonder if in our last few moments maybe you could tell us a little bit about that story. 
Well, I began writing that book uh, during the economic crash of 2008, and I was so moved by uh, the history of this Christian family, the Guinness family, uh, how, first of all, their, their business was doing something many Christians have considered to be evil, you know, brewing alcohol, um, and yet they changed Irish society. They changed the world, really, with uh, their generosity, with the way they ran their businesses, the way that they, the, the values they built upon. Um, they were the world's most famous brand for much of the world. We in America don't focus as much on Guinness as they do elsewhere in the world. Um, but, man, if, I, I grew up in Europe, and I can tell you Guinness is one of the big, big brands. Hmm. And yet here it was run by a Christian company influenced by John Wesley's social values. Um, uh, the founder, Arthur Guinness, had literally sat and listened to, Arthur, to John Wesley preach. And uh, that just passed down through the generations, and they just did amazing things. They did amazing things uh, in terms of the gospel for their, com- for their country. They did amazing things in social relief. Uh, they created whole new ways of serving society, whole new uh, research and branding and understanding of, uh, of how to end poverty, for example. Um, and, you know, as recently as the early part of the last century, about 1905, one of the Guinness heirs got married, and his, his wedding gift was five, uh, five million pounds, British pounds sterling, uh, which is a massive amount of money. Hmm. And the next day, he and his wife moved into a ghetto to draw attention, the national attention to, uh, to poverty. So that's an example of the Guinness commitment, and it's, uh, there are many, many stories in attendant to it. But I found it fascinating, and I even kind of pick on my history teachers and say, man, why didn't you tell us about beer, and why didn't you, why didn't you tell us about history from those perspectives? Well, for example, I told a beer story that goes along with the pilgrims we'll, we'll be remembering in a few weeks at Thanksgiving. And so for all of those reasons, um, I wrote the book, and it was really a joy. I got to go to the Guinness facility in, in Ireland and so on, but it's, it's really one of my favorite books. I hope everybody picks it up and has a great time with it. Well, and you, you could confirm this, but I, I think one thing that I found fascinating that I've heard about this story is just that he was so concerned with the alcoholism problem uh, in his country that that was one reason he felt led to make this beer that would be hard to get drunk on. And uh, is, is that something that comes out in your book? Yes. Now, that, that, had, that perspective had already begun before he began brewing, but no question, brewer, brewers at that time uh, were seen as uh, like, uh, like people of social benefit. They were respected uh, almost like uh, you know, doctors in the inner cities or something, or, or, or people who were benevolent workers, Red Cross, um, because they were brewing something. People at that time believed the, the natural water in ponds and lakes and rivers was poisonous, and of course it often was because they were poisoning it with their sewage. Um, and then, of course, there was a thing called the gin craze, where everybody began to, uh, you know, create their own alcohol at home. That stuff was strong and dangerous, left people drunk for months. Mm. Um, and so people who began to drink beer uh, and the people who began to brew it, th- this was a, a massive turn uh, in society. It was healthier. It had a lot of B vitamins. It had lower alcohol. It was refreshing. Uh, Hogarth, one of the great uh, painters or printers from that time, has uh, two prints. One's called Beer Alley, and it was called Gin Lane. And Beer Alley is all prosperous and successful, and uh, only the pawnbroker's not doing well. And Gin Alley, it's exactly the reverse. There's lots of poverty and crime, and babies are being given gin to go to sleep, you know, and the pawnbroker's rich. So that, that, that shows you how they viewed it at the time, that beer brought health to society with a little bit of alcohol, but when people were brewing, you know, creating their own alcohol at home, um, it was... Um, it was distilling gin in particular, it just brought devastation to society. And that's, that's the context Arthur Guinness rose in. 
Well, that is fascinating. Well, as I said before, it's election day, and plus you have a, a, a Lincoln book coming out at the same time as the new Lincoln movie is coming out, and so you have a lot of busyness going on today, so I want to make sure we uh, let you go about your time. But thank you so much for being my guest on Voices in My Head today. I really appreciate it. Well, it's always good to be with you. I look forward to next time. Definitely, and I just want to say one more time to listeners, if you go to stephenmansfield.com, you'll be able to find all of his books, a way to buy them there. You'll find videos where he describes the books in detail. You can see some of his interviews from television shows. So, Stephen Mansfield, thank you so much for being a guest today on the show. All right, man. God bless. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Stephen Mansfield. If you have any questions or comments you want to send into the show, you can send them through rickleyjames.com. There's a web uh, email address on there, and you can also go to my Facebook page and leave comments. And uh, it's great to be with you again this week. I do want to remind you that tickets are now on sale for the Rickley James New Year's Eve Bash. And we're going to be featuring like a child and also the italics again this year it's going to be a great show here in springfield ohio only five dollars in advance you can pick them up at www.rickleyjames.com you can buy them there online or you can go to beacon of hope christian stores uh, and uh, get yourself a cup of coffee and grab a ticket only five bucks in advance if you wait until at the door it's going to be ten dollars a ticket so you want to make sure and buy those in advance we're going to have a great new year's eve celebration I believe New Year's Eve is a Monday night this year. Three great bands for $5. Uh, you can't beat that. Plus, there's going to be food, folks, and fun. Lots of games, and uh, we're going to be bringing in the New Year with worship. And so I uh, hope that you guys can all join us that night. And uh, we'll have some new news very soon about the upcoming Rickley James Live DVD, Basement Psalms. You guys have a great week, and God bless. You've been listening to Voices in My Head the official podcast of Rick Lee James. If you'd like to know more about me, my ministry, my music, my life, go to my website at rickleejames.com. You can also download my free mobile app from iTunes and on the Android Marketplace. And I'd love this to be a community experience, so if you call 937-505-0162, you can leave feedback, you can give me suggestions for future shows, you can even record comments that I can play on the next podcast. So let's make this something really great together. 937-505-0162. Thank you so much for listening to Voices in My Head, the official Rick Lee James podcast. God bless.